0: Hallelujah. Fathers, we have witnessed in the preaching of your word of late, the hosts of heaven encamped with your son, Jacob, typifying Christ, signaling that the gates of Canaan land were open to the covenant son. Fathers, we have witnessed in your scriptures, the hosts of heaven gathered in the skies over Bethlehem on that glorious day, Announcing, signaling that the gates of humanity, even the incarnation, were open to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who was born that day to fulfill the terms of our own redemption. And further, Lord, in your ministry we acknowledge your scriptures recording the hosts of people gathering, proclaiming, announcing with palm fronds in hand. And the voice of Scripture on their lips, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Behold, the Son of David, and thus the gates of Jerusalem were open to Jesus Christ, the covenant Son, to take upon himself the burden of our sin, and to be crucified on Calvary. And so we heard this morning in our worship text that the hosts are gathered even in glory. This day the saints who have gone before, and all who will soon join them with palm fronds in hand, worshiping their Savior, fully realizing the blessing for which He died, their glorification and reunion with the Holy One to worship and praise His name forever. In light of these truths, we pray this morning as we, your people, assemble in this place, a small multitude such as we are, nevertheless, we pray that this assembly would signal the gates of our own hearts opened to receive the King of Kings, that by the means of grace and the proclamation of your word and the assembly of the beloved, that you would equip and encourage and speak to your people's hearts to grant unto them the word of life, your word proclaimed in the Holy Scriptures, to encourage our souls in the testimony of our faith, our sins atoned, on the work of Calvary, and our future assured in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, jesus christ thank you lord for this time that your blood has purchased dear jesus may it be maximized for your glory and for the benefit of the beloved so seek to be faithful to our call announcing that there is no higher name than jesus christ before that name every knee must bow and every tongue will confess that he is lord before the glory to the glory of the father We pray that as a result of your word going forth, the testimony of the saints, that knees would bow willfully in repentance before Jesus Christ, confessing their sins and turning to him the only way, truth, and life. Encourage us, we pray, by your Spirit's use of the proclamation of your word this day to acknowledge and proclaim these truths and more to this generation lost, dead, dying in their transgressions and sins so that we might be joined by others, confess faith in Christ, and worship together our risen Savior. In his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, what a great privilege it is to open the Scriptures together and consider God's Holy Word. I pray that you would do so with me today by turning in your Bible to Psalm 119, verses 49 through 56. The seventh stanza in the great acrostic Psalm, Psalm 119, 49 through 56. As you're turning there, I'll give you a title and a name. A title of this morning's message is Zayin, which I'm told per a couple of youtube videos is the way to pronounce the seventh letter in the hebrew alphabet zayin the title of this section and then this title or this subtitle that for my message today the trial of lawbreakers and as you recall the working theme for this entire song has been the sufficiency of the word of god and what i have submitted is that each section after section 1 presents to us a trial for which our author confesses proclaims the word of God is sufficient. And in our text today, we find, yes, the word of God is sufficient for us to strengthen and equip the church to oppose the wicked who forsake his law. These are the ones who in their derision mock us for our faith. And in our journey between now and glory present in many cases affliction from which we must stand. Nevertheless, the word of God is sufficient for this trial. The trial of lawbreakers. My aim in proclaiming this section of Psalm 119 today is to declare to you the sufficiency of God's Word, the sufficiency of God's Word even in the presence of His enemies. And this theme, of course, dovetails well with our message from last week, where the Apostle Peter taught us to identify and to rebuke enemies of the Church of Jesus Christ. And also, it overlaps well with the theme of our last section in Psalm 119 where we are strengthened to oppose those who would scoff at us in our belief and where we stand in our faith, and to use the Scriptures to do so as well. Thus, we have in many examples, in just our preaching tracts and our messages of late, how the Word of God can strengthen us for persecution. So with that introduction, would you stand for the reading of God's Word today? Out of reverence, let us consider these eight verses, the Zion section, Psalm 119, verses 49 through 56, here is the immutable, infallible word of God. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord." Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Zayin, the trial of lawbreakers. The seventh Hebrew letter. And the seventh stanza of the great acrostic psalm in the Psalter declares to the reader that the word of God is sufficient for the test of insolent and derisive lawbreakers. Insolent, petty, childish, rebellious. Derisive, those who scoff and mock to belittle those with whom they disagree. Namely, enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ and their attitude in their sin against believers and Christians. While the author of this text remains a mystery to us, It is easy to imagine these words inspired by the trials of David during his exile from the madness of Saul. Saul was certainly a lawbreaker and an insolent one at that. Yet was it not the word of God through even the writings and the songs of David that equipped and prepared him to stand against the madness of the king in spite of his power, in spite of his armies, and in spite of his campaign to stamp out the covenant son? Furthermore, Psalms 59 and 60 were written under such circumstances and strike a similar tone. The righteous man must sometimes lament in faith, the experience of David teaches us. The righteous man must sometimes lament in faith, reminding himself that the afflictions he suffers are temporary while the law of his God and the power of his God is ultimately superior. Lament in faith, knowing that the law of God and the power of God are superior, and they will have the last word. The psalmist's plight was often shared by the prophets as well. Listening through the scriptures, I was reminded of this lately in the context of the book of Jeremiah. The messenger of God's word to an arrogant and wicked people spoke the truth, often risking his own life. This so certainly the case with Jeremiah. Jeremiah could relate to the psalmist's plight as he sank into the mud in the cistern of Malachi, uh, of, uh, in the, cistern of Malachi the king's son. This is recorded in Jeremiah 38.6. Punishment that was prescribed to him for daring to tell the king the truth, the truth that he must submit to a higher authority over him, The word and law of God, for which every king, every ruler, and every man will one day give an account. Oftentimes, the prophets spoke words that made far more enemies than converts. Wasn't this true in Isaiah's case? In the beginning of the book of Isaiah, there's that calling. And then this discouraging reality, if you were to view it from the flesh alone. The Lord tells Isaiah, I will use your words to harden people's hearts. And your oracles will, by and large, be a message of judgment, bringing upon this people the judgment they deserved for their hardness of heart and sins against my holy name. Thus, it was true in Isaiah's case that he was risking his life to proclaim the truth and that his spoken words would make more enemies than converts. But ultimately, God had purposes redemptively in the words of Isaiah as he prophesied and proclaimed hope in a Messiah to come, we his people, thousands of years later, cling to those words of the one who would die in our place. But this would take faith if you're in his shoes, would it not? Oftentimes the prophets were called in such, under such conditions, and so are we. Peter has reminded us in 2 Peter to maintain a what we've called reckoning perspective in times like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And David experienced and, I suggest, in times like ours. Peter has appealed to errors of decisive judgment and salvation to encourage the church who faces the deriding lawbreakers of her day. The context of these occasions during the days of Lot and Noah remind us that standing for the truth at, the, at a time when it was lonely and dangerous, or at standing at the tru- for the truth at that time was a lonely and dangerous calling. In the days of Lot and in the days of Noah, as in many eras in world history, standing for the truth is a lonely and dangerous calling, at least when viewed from the short-term perspective of our human experience. But we must remember, and the Word gives us this perspective, that when we stand for the truth, ultimately we join with everyone who is persecuted for righteousness' sake that went before us. Those who Hebrews 11 records populate the stands of glory, cheering us on as it were. Maintain that reckoning perspective. Stand strong. You are not alone, even though it feels like it sometimes. And though this calling is dangerous, for it you must at times, may, or you may at times give your life or be sawn in two. Nevertheless, remember, these are the same people who receive the dead back to life. And these are the same people who will defy death in Jesus Christ eventually and the second resurrection, as they all will arise one day, proving that our Lord and Savior and Messiah is stronger than the last enemy. What of our day? If the calling to take up our cross and follow Jesus today is also lonely and dangerous at times, how can we be reassured that it is not in vain and that God will give us the courage and equipment to remain faithful? Well, Psalm 119, along with these other passages of Scripture, is helpful in this regard. The author continues to answer this question of where do we find strength and reassurance in difficult times? And he does so by pointing to glorious themes. Glorious themes recorded in stanza number 7. The word of God is indeed sufficient for the trial even of hostile lawbreakers. The psalmist records a growing testimony of endurance. We've marked how this song takes the shape of a journey through one's life. And if this psalm represents a lifetime of serving the Lord, we're about a third of the way through. And we find as the psalmist confesses that God has been faithful. And he has every reason to believe he will be faithful still. He records a growing testimony of endurance in the Zayin section. A third of the way through of this great psalm, he continues to find refuge, comfort, and blessings, and themes for rejoicing and song. And where does he find these things? In his words, in the word, promise, law, rules, statutes, and precepts of his Lord and Savior. Here's a heading Despite the law of forsaking wicked, God's word remains the following. Just three basic words to organize our message today. Reassuring, reinforcing, and rewarding. Despite the law forsaking wicked, God's word remains reassuring. Verses 49 and 50. In spite of His enemies, the law forsaking wicked, God's word remains reinforcing. 51 through 53. And finally, His word remains for us rewarding. 54 through 56. Let us turn again to our main passage and note in verse 49, the personalization that the author uses to describe the promises of God, first, while he ascribes the word to the Lord, he secondly identifies himself as his servant. Remember your word to your servant. Who owns these words upon whom he relies? Whose message is it? It's the immutable, infallible, it's the unchanging, ever-powerful word of God. It is that same word the scriptures would go on to declare, whereas the grass withers and the flowers fade, that which is merely created in the material realm after the fall is subject to decay. Nevertheless, there is something eternal that never withers, but always overcomes. And this is represented by the word of God. This is the word of God. This is the word of God made flesh. So when the psalmist says, remember your word to your servant, He's attaching his future and his hope to something that will endure forever. And notice this can only be true if indeed we are his. How how are the reassurances and the promises of the word ours? Well, they are ours if we are in Christ. They are ours if we are in the covenant. They are ours if we are his servants Therefore, the promises of the word are ours if he is our master, if we are his own, bought with a price, slaves of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they are ours if we are his children, adopted sons and daughters, and as such, heirs of the promises of Abraham. This is how we are reassured. This personal revelation is something. It ties the experience and the hope of the author to the promises all the way back to, for example, Genesis 22. And in our Genesis series, you'll recall this perhaps. After Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on the altar, a substitute lamb is provided, and there are multiple appearings of the angel of the Lord. And as this scene concludes, we find the angel speaking thus in verse 15... And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is a promise given to Abraham and to his offspring. The psalmist is assured that he is, in the, according to the covenant, the offspring of Abraham. He's Abraham's son. Therefore, when he thinks of his rules, that is, that which God has laid forth even from of old, verse 52, he is assured of this promise. If he is Abraham's offspring, then he will own the gates of the city. He is more than a conqueror because the promises of God assure him ultimate victory through the covenant son to come. And you see the reassuring use of the law then in the confession and the encouragement of the author of Psalm 119. He had these promises to look forward to, or he had these promises to reassure him And he had these promises to look forward to as well. Victory, ultimately, in Christ. Another way to look at this is to see the connections between the Old Covenant and the New. Uh, Kids, does anyone know John 3.16? Does anyone have that verse memorized? For God so loved the... Anyone finish that one? That he... That whosoever... Would believe in him, should not perish, but? That's correct. Notice the connection in the scriptures between Genesis 22 and John 3:16, Because Abraham did not spare his son, but offered him up on the altar, thus promises were assured all in his lineage. This spoke of another father-son relationship to come, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophetic picture. Because God the Father did not spare His Son, but offered up Jesus Christ for us. Therefore, we have the promises that were given to Abraham. Ultimate victory and hope in Jesus Christ. In as we read these beloved verses, like John 3.16, or Romans 8.37-39, through 39, we recognize what the psalmist of old did, that there is reassuring promises in the Word of God that strengthen us to stand even in the wake of law-forsaking, wicked enemies of the Lord. In uh, Romans chapter 8, we have that beloved passage that nothing can separate us from the love of God. For instance, towards the end of the chapter, Paul says this, No, 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The revelation that the author of Psalm 119 recognized gave him reassurance. And that same revelation, and even greater for us, as the canon has been uh, fulfilled or has been completed now, all of the scriptures, is, is a revelation that is personal and powerful. One of the errors of the charismatic movement has held out, if not explicitly so, at least by inference, that there is reassurance to be drawn by a personal, profound and spectacular experience of the Spirit of God in some way. That is to say, there is much comfort and reassurance invested in one's personal experience with the Lord. The way you feel in worship, the way you feel in prayer, the sense of the Lord speaking to you directly. But I want you to notice something. It was not because of a personal theophany the author of Psalm 119 felt the reassurance of the Lord. It was not his sense of warmth as he worshipped him and got goosebumps or a sense of the Lord speaking him directly. No, what the psalmist teaches us is that he had sufficient and substantial comfort to be drawn from the revelation of the Lord in his word that was objective and absolute and recorded for him, given to his forebearer Abraham and later would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you find yourself shaken and struggling in your faith, I would encourage you, go to the rock. Go to the source, the true source of comfort. Don't invest in the subjective, that which you feel. Let that be secondary. Let those feelings and that sense of joy and overwhelming follow a particular order. First, you find reassurance in the Word of God, and then it bubbles over into worshipful songs of joy and praise. This is the order of reassurance properly realized when we take the Word of God to heart in passages like Psalm 119. Note, you don't need a personal revelation like an angel visiting you in the night. Why? Because you have a personal revelation, so to speak, in the Word of God. If you are a son or daughter of Abraham, if you are in the lineage of the Messiah, blood-bought and redeemed through your uh, salvation, Having been born again, a new creation, recreated, identified with Christ in that holy and amazing reality and experience, then the Word is yours. The promises of God's Word are yours, and you are His servant. And these, you can find your hope. This is a grounded hope. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. People invest hope in all kinds of wild-eyed ideas. A false prophecies hinges on the marketplace of hope deferred, if you will. People place their bets and have wild ideas and hope against hope in any number of things. But the psalmist models for us godly prayer and a grounded hope. He prays that the Lord would remember his word to his servant. The New Testament saints echoed this same pattern in Acts chapter 4. You could turn there with me. As you're able, in Acts chapter 4, this glorious prayer, as the Spirit was indwelling the church and preparing them to be effective and bold witnesses to the truth, we today are heirs of their ministry. Listen to this in verse 29, they prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, this prayer—they're in this prayer, they're asking the Lord to remember, that is, to act according to His will. Remember your promises, your word to your servant. Remember, O Lord, that the promise of the gospel and Jesus Christ our Savior is that the Holy Spirit would equip us to stand even in the presence of your enemies. Though we be few in number, and though our message be the only hope for the world, yet we don't know where to start and how you will spread this across this Roman Empire. Nevertheless, we pray that you would remember that promise, that you would fulfill it according to your word. And in this kind of prayer, and in this orientation of the soul, and in this appeal to the Lord, just as a psalmist in Psalm 119, so the early church found their hope. They found their hope in their personal connection to the covenant of God through their relationship with Jesus Christ. They found their hope in a grounded understanding of the Lord's purposes and His Word. And they prayed and encouraged and obeyed accordingly. In verse 50 in Psalm 119, the psalmist continues, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. He continues to draw reassurance, right? Despite the law forsaking wicked, God's Word remains reassuring. It is reassuring to know that in Christ... The promises of Abraham and beyond are ours. It is reassuring to know that our hope is grounded in the unshakable sovereign will of God. And it is comforting to know that these promises include eternal life. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is praying accordingly or confessing these truths and applying them in his own personal experience and for the benefit of the church. And he says these familiar words, verse 1, For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, Why is Paul of great courage and the saints who join them in this confession of faith? Because we walk by faith even in the midst of affliction that in Jesus we have eternal life. This time of year, traditionally, the resurrection is celebrated. And every morning that we gather here in this place, it is in part a celebration of what is secured and assured us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who brave the greatest enemy with confidence in their eyes do so knowing that if Jesus defeated death, then they too will rise with him. This is the life that is promised in the covenant that gave reassurance to the author of Psalm 119. And what greater source do we have to draw on when we see that Jesus fulfilled these words, sealed and assured them in his own resurrection? Last night we lost a brother in Christ to death, but not ultimately so. Just talking to Evan today, his uncle Paul passed away in the night hour sometime yesterday, succumbing to sickness of the flesh and lung disease and so forth. Well, one thing that we, he and I were speaking of this morning and we were praying about it and thanking God for was the testimony of his confession that even though his body grew weak and that tent was wearing out, so to speak, physically, nevertheless, he had the comforting hope of Jesus Christ to assure him that even in the greatest of afflictions, he would survive death in Jesus Christ. We read in morning prayer, Revelation 21, reminding ourselves that right now, Paul is before the throne of God, perfectly healthy, no tears, no pain, celebrating the fullness of his redemption realized. Why? Because by the stripes of Jesus Christ, he is healed and so will we be My favorite catechism question is the number one, is number one of the Heidelberg. The question is this, and the answer is glorious. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer: that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That is a summary of gospel promises that is your only comfort in life and in death. It's a summary of the gospel assurance that gives you confidence in the day of affliction and gives you strength to stand even in an hour where the law-forsaking wicked seem to have a monopoly on the voices of culture and the megaphones of culture. That's point number one. Despite the law-forsaking wicked, God's word remains reassuring. Point number two, despite the law forsaking wicked, God's word remains reinforcing, strengthens us for the battle. Verse 51, Psalm 119, the insolent utterly deride me. So the insolent, they're the petty and rebellious, those who hate the Lord and his people. They utterly deride me. They belittle me and make fun of me to put me down. He goes on, verse 51, but I do not turn away from your law. So even though he is mocked for standing on this truth, God's word has said once and for all, what is right, what is wrong, what is righteousness, what is wickedness, what is salvation and what is judgment, the way of hope in Christ and the way of judgment for the unbeliever. He stands upon these things and though he is mocked for doing so, nevertheless, he does not turn away from his law. He says, verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, Again, he says, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. You can hear in this poetic way the author is working through his own difficulties, how he is reinforced and strengthened in his resolve and his commitment and conviction to stand in a day when his his faith is challenged. There is a conviction, a consistency, and a confrontation that are involved in the situation that he is facing. It's a situation that requires conviction. In verse 51, the insolent utterly dried me, but I do not turn away from your law. I have spoken from time to time in what I call the evangelical <clears throat> inferiority complex. <clears throat> the evangelical inferiority complex is just a, word, a term that I use to describe a church that is timid in the face of its enemies, of her enemies, why why are we so timid? Why do we sometimes cower by the objections that a wicked and pagan, secular, materialistic, naturalistic world gives us? Well, it's because we haven't been sufficiently reinforced through the equipment and confidence that comes in understanding the forever reality of the Word of God. Uh, see if this will come up this morning during prayer. It's kind of found it ironic. I got a text from—it's ah, not on my phone at the moment. I got a text from like Apple News or something like that, <clears throat> and it was a editorial about a so-called transgender swimmer who has just been breaking all the swimming records and you know beating the women in these different meets. Why? Because they are a man. And then it's like how the reason why this is so inspiring. It just so happens that in the sinfulness of our culture right now, the definitions of the created order, the law that God has laid down from time immemorial, from Genesis 2.24 that Jesus referenced in Matthew 19, is supposedly up for review. Have you not read, Jesus tells the people, what God has established forever in His law and according to His creation? His law, witnessed in His word and witnessed in creation, says, from the beginning, He created them male and female. And now, in our insolent derision, as a culture, we mock those forever truths, and we will be proven the fool in due course. Is the church equipped to stand strong and confident in light of this kind of absurdity? Well, we certainly should. People were remarking about the ironic situation that's also witnessed in the news of late, where the latest nominee to the Supreme Court recently confirmed Katanji Brown was asked directly in the hearings to determine if she's qualified, you know, to serve in the preeminent law, whatever it is, a deciding body or a law interpreting body in our land, the so-called Supreme Court. She was asked, what is a woman? She deferred. She did not answer the question. It seemed as if that she was not willing to go on record to answer this very basic question. What is the correct answer? Genesis 2:24, Matthew 19:4. From the beginning, God created them, male and female. Therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate. Let no man redefine. You see the words of Jesus, echoing the eternal axioms that He has laid forth, witnessed in both creation and in the Word of God. And it wasn't but a day later, when it was celebrated across all the news wires, that the first black woman has been nominated to the Supreme Court. Isn't that ironic? A woman who doesn't want to go on record to define what a woman is is celebrated as the first woman. We can't even answer what that question is to serve in the Supreme Court. Should we have an inferiority complex because our culture is so confused during times like these? No. We need to stand strong. We need to be reinforced in our conviction by what the Word of God says so we can answer this confusion with the clear and unequivocal reality of what the Word of God says. He has said so from the beginning, it remains true today, and we need to have the appropriate conviction and consistency to say as much. Yes, we are facing law-forsaking, wicked, insolent, deriding enemies of God. But we, like the psalmist, can glean great encouragement from the word, the law, the rules, the statutes, and the precepts of God. When we recognize what the psalmist acknowledges, that though the insolent utterly deride these things, We do not turn away from the law. And when we think on his rules of old, we can take great comfort. And we can have an appropriate disposition of the soul when we recognize the mess that in our sin culturally we've created for ourselves. We don't need that inferiority response to cower and so forth in the face of the conflict or in the face of the opposition. But instead, we should have a righteous anger where appropriate. Indeed, verse 53, a hot indignation that seizes us because of the wicked who forsake the law of God. When you listen to the voices of culture, the so-called new and improved attempts at self-definition, do you not think that there is cause for righteous anger? That we ought to be moved with a hot indignation against those who forsake the law of God? Why Why is the church timid? Why does she cower so? Well, it is usually the case that we do not feel confident in opposing the loudest voices that take issue with our faith. And when we fall into this fear of man, what do we do with respect to the law of God? Well, we tend to avoid it or to ignore it, to reject it, to twist it, to deny it, or to just put it outside of our mind to shame, in shame, to distance ourselves from what God has spoken. But what would God have us do? We are to embrace it, to love it, to confess it, to stand upon it, to write it upon the tables of our heart, and to offer that truth with compassion, saying, repent to this standard and believe, or you too will likewise perish. This is the difference between a church that cowers in the face of opposition the insolent and and deriding wicked who forsake the law of God and those who stand in a day such as ours. To stand in a day such as ours takes the conviction that the law of God is eternal and authoritative. The law of God is consistent. It does not change. It represents the rule and the standard whereby all claims are judged. And when we embrace this truth and this consistency, We will join the wise through the ages, though we might be a minority, and stand on an unshakable foundation. But if we capitulate, if we are timid, if we ignore, reject, and twist, and deny, and distance ourselves from the word of God in our shame, then we will fall prey, most likely, to the devouring line of our day. And we will suffer apostasy in the age when our faith is confronted. What do we need? A litmus test for holiness, one might say a litmus test for holiness is what makes you angry. A litmus test for holiness, what makes you angry? Speaking of the news, uh, this week or a week before, I'm not sure as to the timeline, and I haven't read a lot of the stories directly yet, suffice it to say that recently, baby parts from botched, presumably, uh, partial birth abortions, which are illegal in Washington, D.C., came into the possession of certain pro-life activists. These pro-life activists or activists was promptly arrested for having these, uh, these uh, things in their possession. But you know, and I heard some of the tearful testimony of these individuals who came upon this clear evidence of horrific infanticide, murderous atrocity that is going on right now. They did the right thing in naming these little ones. And they attached names to these lost and these, these broken little ones who were crucified at the altar of whatever we call it these days, like women's rights and women's health and right to choose and so on and so forth. And as they were pleading for the lives of these little ones and the future little ones, one of them did so in jail for being in possession of the very evidence of this criminal act that was committed against These who are made in the image of God, helpless and innocent, the little ones. And isn't it just like the wickedness of our day that there doesn't seem to be the political will to hold the butcher accountable for his slaughter of the innocent ones? Why? Because it's a hot-button, politically-protected issue. This holy sacrament of abortion, the blood of the little ones must be shed. Why? Because it's a false atonement that we embrace in our day. People don't trust in the blood of Jesus. Blood will be shed. Will it be the innocent ones that fall on the altar of our sin and perversion? Or will we repent and trust that we don't need to slaughter our babies because Jesus Christ was killed for that kind of sin? I pray when you hear news like this, that your response would join the psalmist as you grow confident in the word of God that hot indignation would seize you because of the wicked who forsake his law. And let me be quick to add, that righteous anger must be coupled with the sense of grace and mercy. You too deserve to be killed for your transgressions and sins and escape by the grace of God alone. This is law and gospel going forth to a wicked culture, confidently declaring we deserve hell and judgment, but in Christ, who is slaughtered in your behalf, there is forgiveness for the worst of sinners. Turn to him and believe. But that message won't go forth with clarity until we are convicted that abortion is sin. Thou shalt not murder. That clarity of repentance will not go forth to this culture until we say boldly that God has made them male and female and it's not up for alteration or revision. By these means, that is the law of God, loved and understood, We are reinforced to have the conviction, the consistency that's necessary to face the confrontations in our day. And this is what we learn from Psalm 119 and the rest of Scripture. Final point this morning. Despite the law forsaking wicked, God's word remains rewarding. Yes, it can feel overwhelming to be surrounded by such wickedness and enemies. The examples I gave you described we even face in our day. But nevertheless, though this sojourning time is fraught with difficulty and affliction, nevertheless, there was cause for celebration in the house of the author of Psalm 119. He says in verse 54, Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The Word of God is rewarding, encouraging. It is a theme for songs and celebration. Worship is heard from the walls, from the tent walls, so to speak, of the sojourning author of Psalm 119. These joyful themes of celebration echo forth from his household, arresting the attention and the affections of his home. What a great vision verse for family worship. We emphasize family worship a lot in this church because it's such a great application of so many, uh, or for families of their duty to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when we gather our little ones and fathers, husbands, your wife at the dinner table or whenever you do so, open the scriptures, read a bit, sing a hymn, sing a song of praise to the Lord, close in prayer, however it's ordered. When you do this kind of thing, what are you doing? You're making your stat- the statutes of the Lord your songs, the cause for celebration. It, it, it's the fixture or the altar point for which your family is encouraged. The unity and the purpose of your home is established according to the word of God and you acknowledge as much when the themes of God's word become your cause for rejoicing. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Sojourning, of course, refers to a traveler who is far from home. As we remember this concept, which we've covered a bit. And it's fitting with the theme of Psalm 119 as well. And there's application points that we can relate to. On our own journey through the uh, valley, at, so to speak, of God's purposes for this world, we face hardship and difficulties, and among them, the wicked lawbreakers, Uh, who who forsake God's Word and deride us along the way. But nevertheless, if the statutes of the Lord, of His Word, are on our lips in song as we gather in this place and the worship team leads us in praise to the Almighty God and reminds us through the content of our worship songs of the forever truth of what God has laid down in His Holy Word, if these statutes become our songs, then we find great encouragement and even reward in the midst of affliction. The word of God has power to guide us and guard us, to take us even through the night. Verse 55, I remembered your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Or I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. We're reminded in this passage of both the name of the Lord in Proverbs 18.10 and the name of the Lord in Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, Proverbs 18, that's that passage where the author declares that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. So kids, imagine being all alone, and night begins to fall. And nights can be kind of eerie in our neck of the woods, right? You guys heard a chorus of coyotes hollering, and it seems like so close If you turned on the light, they would scamper away just on the edge of the woods. Or maybe the lonesome howl of a wolf, and you wonder if there's a kill, you know, just beyond your eyesight. And things become unclear and uncertain and dangerous. You can feel isolated, despairing. The wicked come out at night. What does the night represent? All of these dangers and difficulties poetically are illustrated. Danger, isolation, evil, Despair, confusion. But what the Psalmist tells us is that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. In the middle of the night, it's that fortress, it's that fortified position, it's that secure location that prevent present or prevents any of the enemies from attacking us. You can sleep soundly in castle walls, thick with the stones of God's statutes. You can sleep soundly in the armored, uh ar- in the uh, armored troop carrier, if you will, to use a modern analogy of the promises and law of God. You can sleep soundly in a nuclear bomb-reinforced bunker of God's rules and statutes when you take comfort, take refuge in the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? The name of the Lord speaks of His renown, His power, His accomplishments, His works, His authority, that which He has done. Read through the scriptures and realize that the name of the Lord is associated with every time he delivered his people against all odds in their journey through the exodus wilderness. Read through the scriptures and realize, as we mentioned in this sermon, in the case of David, against all odds, delivered an anointed king, even in the face of a mad king who had a bounty on his head. The name of the Lord delivered him. The name of the Lord delivered Jeremiah from that pit, sinking in the quicksand of mire, the hatred of insolent lawbreakers. And God raised up a deliverer for Jeremiah and pulled him out of that pit, as he did Joseph and as he did us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the name of the Lord. Furthermore, the name of the Lord has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 2, we have this glorious revelation. One of my favorite passages, if I can find it. In Ephesians 2, Paul is exalting the glories of the Lord. And he concludes his statement in these worshipful tones, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is the name that gives us refuge in the night of our affliction. That is the name, the name that commands the worship, the bowing, the submission, I should say, of everyone who has ever and will ever live This is the name of the Lord that is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe, and the wicked are crushed by it on the final day. I remember your name in the night, the psalmist proclaims in verse 55, Psalm 119. I remember your name, O Lord, and keep your law. Remembering the name of the Lord is attended by a growing obedience, reverence, appreciation for him. Those who love, revere, and honor, and take refuge in the name, submit, surrender, and obey, and follow the word of God. And as they do so, their courage, their confidence, and their reinforcements, their armaments grow. The rewarding truth of God's word provides for us cause for worship, the source of safety and authority, and finally, the blessing of obedience. Verse 56 this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, I think that's how you pronounce his name, has a poem that uh, is one of my favorites called The Gods of the Copybook Headings. And as the poem is wrapping up, it's a stinging rebuke of the progressivism of his day, which basically was the dawn of our age, as I understand it. And he includes words like this. And the gods of the market tumbled, and their smooth-tongued wizards withdrew, and the hearts of the meanest were humbled and began to believe it was true, that all is not gold that glitters, and two and two make four, and the gods of the copybook headings limped up to explain it once more as it will be in the future, as it was at the birth of man, there are only four things certain since social progress began. The dog returns to his vomit, the sow returns to her mire, and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes back, wobbling back to the fire. Final stanza. And that after this is accomplished and the brave new world begins, when all men are paid for existing, And no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. What are the gods of the copybook headings? Well, at that time, the young people in their writing, they were encouraged to do two things, repeat, you know, write over and over again certain phrases that would help them with their penmanship, their English, their writing skills. But so as not to waste a good learning opportunity, education at that time had them repeat phrases that were eternally true. Truths drawn from the book of Proverbs and reiterated by Peter and by Rudyard in this poem. The dog returns to his vomit and the sow returns to her mire. This is, this is a poetic way of describing the word, the promise, the law, the rules, the statutes, the precepts that which comes up to condemn us if we should ever reject and forget what Rudyard Kipling called the gods of the copybook headings. He contrasts that in his poem with the gods of the marketplace. This is progressivism run amuck. These are the new and improved ideas that claim a woman just beat a bunch of women when it in reality was a man in a swim meet in some college somewhere. Well, one, is, one thing is true. A day of reckoning will come. And the question, the question isn't if that reckoning will come. The question is, where will you stand when it comes? Will you be found obediently serving and standing on the word and law of God? The blessing of law-keeping. This is a calling of sanctification. The third use of the law that we recognize in theology is something like a vision for worship. It lays out the way to glorify, to love and serve our Savior and those whose hearts have been transformed. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, have had a heart-transforming knowledge of Jesus Christ and his gospel. They have new desires now, and they are given the gift, the blessing of obedience. This blessing has fallen on me that I have kept your precepts. The psalmist knows that it's not by his works, nor his own resolve, nor his own confidence, nor his own might that he can stand on the word of God. Or poetically, in that poem we just read a bit of the God's copybook headings, he knows that if he is obeying the Lord, if he is standing on the Word of God, and if he is doing so, it is, a, it is because he has been blessed. Obedience is a work of grace, is the fruit of the Spirit worked out in the life of a believer who stands upon the gospel. This is the blessing of law keeping, the calling of sanctification. The third use of the law, it's a vision for worship. Psalm 119, it's a huge theme there as well. The Zayin section offers multifaceted exhortation depending on where you stand with respect to God's law. If you're in Christ, the application I just gave you is a good one. Look to the law of God, love it, and seek to follow it. If you're outside of Christ, the law of God condemns you. And if you're in that situation, you must repent and turn to Jesus. The law of God exposes you. You are a wicked, law-forsaking, deriding rebel against the word of God, against him and his Messiah until you repent and turn to him and trust in his work of sacrificial death to purchase your life and to pay for your sins. If you have faithfully suffered for the name of Jesus, Psalm 119, Reminds you to take comfort in your affliction. As long as there is today, seek the blessing of law keeping by the power of the Spirit for His glory, and it will be to you that is, the Word of God will remain for you a reassuring source, a reinforcing strength, and a rewarding reality. So take this word to heart, Saints. If you have grown weary in well doing, return to the source of your encouragement in the Holy Scriptures. If there's someone in the hearing of this message and the law of God as it's proclaimed from the word condemns you, repent and believe. And if you uh, realize that there is more that needs to be done by way of confidence in the face of the wicked enemies that surround us, I encourage you to be equipped in your confidence, be equipped in the tools of your warfare by paying close heed to the Holy Scriptures. And in this way, the word and the promises, the law and the rules, the statutes and the precepts of Almighty God will be sufficient to equip the church for the trial of lawbreakers. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your holy word and the message it contains for us even in the day of trial. I pray that we would draw great encouragement and strength from your word to stand, Lord, with the appropriate response when the wicked lawbreakers belittle and condemn you, Lord, and take lightly your holy word. I pray that we would be able and ready and equipped to rebuke and to call for repentance and to do so with our heart reminded that there is heaven to gain and hell to shun. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. Encourage us, Lord, we pray, so that we avail ourselves through your scriptures of every opportunity to stand in the day when our faith is challenged. Thank you for these things that you've granted unto us, the means of grace, the gathering of your saints, proclamation of your word, these hymns of praise, these great themes of redemption that we have sung of today, and the fellowship of each other, and the prayers that we offer. Lord, I pray in all of these that you would be glorified as your church is strengthened. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.